Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey guys, jump back into the Wayback Machine with me today. We got to go back 20 years to the year 2001. Today we're going to cover the case of Gary Lee Sampson out of Massachusetts. I guess he was all over Massachusetts and New Hampshire, but it's a disturbing case. Most people probably remember it. Gary Lee Sampson was a drifter. That's how he was referred to in the press, who went on a murderous, and I mean a murderous crime spree throughout Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Part of the story is so horrendous is because it never should have happened. Gary Lee Sampson called the FBI from Abington, Massachusetts, and he wanted to turn himself in. And the FBI somehow ends up hanging up on this guy. Gary Lee Sampson waited there for hours, waiting for an FBI agent to come pick him up. He had been involved in a string of bank robberies down south, and he wanted to get sobered up and turn himself in. He waited there for hours, waiting for law enforcement to pick him up. This is such a sad case. This felon tried to turn himself into the Boston FBI, and they somehow fumbled the ball. And I'll tell you a little bit about it, but let's get to Gary Lee Sampson's early life, because the actual crime spree in this case is horrific, but I want to give you a little bit of background on this guy. All right, guys, so Gary Lee Sampson was raised in what appears to be a normal suburban fashion. He was born in Weymouth, Massachusetts, but was raised in nearby Abington. Abington's a beautiful community. It's often described as a bedroom community for commuters to Boston. And I think that's about what it is. There's more businesses in the area now than there was back in the 2000s. But at the time, it was a beautiful community. It still is. They have a commuter rail station into the city of Boston, and a lot of people utilize that. So... He seemed to have a middle-class upbringing. His dad was named Albert Herc Sampson, and he was a local firefighter. His mother was Charlotte, and I believe she was a stay-at-home mom. A lot of moms were at the time. And the dad also drove a fire truck and all this, so it seemed to be an okay situation. You know, one guy's a firefighter raising a family in the suburbs. So whatever the family dynamic, Gary Lee Sampson starts getting arrested as a juvenile very early and for disturbingly serious crimes. He ends up going away to a youth facility, a youth prison. And in Massachusetts, I can't tell you how much it takes for something like that to happen, how many crimes you have to commit to be committed to a Department of Youth Services prison. It's astronomical. So he must have really hit for the cycle. It appears that Gary Lee Sampson is an only child. I see no other information on other family members, so that's my assumption at this point. It seems like Mr. Sampson had made the decision early on to become a criminal. Unfortunately, he wasn't a very good one. Some of the charges against him, the first one I see is 1974. 
And I think he would have been 15 or 16 at that time. He was arrested on a breaking and entering charge in Abington. Then 76, trying to steal gasoline with a motor vehicle. Acquitted of a charge of rape in 1978. That should have been a red flag. He was charged with drug possession in 79. 1980, he was charged with armed robbery. So he was just, I think, the world's worst criminal, you know? I think we all know people like this. They just can't do right. And they don't even do crime well. They suck at it, right? They're in and out of prison. And you're like, why don't you just get a job, settle down? Gary Lee Sampson, I have to tell you, the reason he doesn't is he's a raging, and I mean a raging alcoholic. If you ever know anybody where they seem to have like an allergy to alcohol, it just turns them into a festering sore. That's Gary Lee Sampson. And I know, don't bother to email me. I know alcoholism is a disease, but I'm talking like this seems to be like an allergy for this guy, Samson. It seems like he's extra sensitive to alcohol and that led him to other stupid choices, you know, drugs, alcohol, crime. It's just a crazy circle for these guys. So in 1981, Gary escaped prison or jail. I think it was a local jail and he got charged for that. Then in 19... 82, he got a three-year suspended sentence for breaking into a gas station in Tamworth, New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is a lot more strict than Massachusetts in terms of going to prison. So that's exactly what happened to Mr. Sampson. He continued to break into homes in Tamworth, 1984. Again, escaped from prison. He was convicted of burglary in Tamworth. And at that point, he was sentenced up to seven years. And then he was paroled in 87, convicted of a parole violation and sent back to New Hampshire prison to serve more than four years. So all of Samson's nonsense continues, it takes us up to about July 1995. He was doing great. He had just gotten released on parole. He had a job. He was doing well. When he's in a structured environment, this guy can function, but when he's left to his own devices... The alcohol, the booze just calls to him way too much. But he's able to pull this off for about two years. In 1997, he met and married Karen Alexander. She actually ended up, turned up pregnant and they got married. And things seemed to be going pretty well. He wasn't drinking, he was working. But as would become a pattern in Gary Lee Sampson's life, he just pop, boom, he's gone, he disappears. He just got married. I don't even know if the wife had the baby yet, and he takes off June 97 down to South Carolina, and things go from bad to worse. During one of these arrests in South Carolina, he meets a woman by the name of Amanda Newcomb, and he meets her in the most curious way I've ever heard. He's in one jail cell on the ground floor, and she's above, and they communicate like that back and forth. He develops through her that Amanda Newcomb's parents are rich. And that's all that needed to be said to Mr. Sampson. So he latches on. And it's very coincidental they fall in love. I know. Who doesn't fall in love with your cellmate that's stationed right above you? It happens all the time, guys. So Gary, being the master manipulator, has Newcomb's father. I believe it's her father or grandfather post bail for him. But as soon as he gets out, he continues on this downward spiral and Amanda Newcomb would come to rue the day that she ever met Gary Lee Sampson. So this new romance was going so well, he gets bailed out of jail, but as soon as he gets out, 
he marries Amanda Newcomb. And I just, I can't believe, I don't know if this is wife three or four, I've lost count. But in October of that year, he was getting Utsi, and by Thanksgiving, Gary was ready to strike out again. And that's exactly what he did. He hit the road again and resurfaced in Thomasville, North Carolina, kind of changing his name to Gary Lee Johnson instead of Gary Lee Sampson. So Gary and the new wife kick around the South Carolina area. He's doing odd jobs. Now he's drinking again. But pretty soon he meets another young woman. Her name is Karen Anderson. So Gary Lee Sampson leaves wife number three or four and moves in with Karen Anderson, who said that he was like a knight in shining armor. So she's probably a pretty good judge of character. And at this point, Sampson starts relaying to his new love interest, Karen, that he thinks his calling is actually robbing banks. And that's what he sets out to do but not before he puts a knife to Karen Anderson's throat and makes her participate on some level in these bank robberies. I don't think she was ever charged. I think she ended up declining at some level, but he was extremely abusive with this Karen Anderson. Put a knife to her throat, was threatening her, demanding that she participate in a string of bank robberies. He was totally off the chain at this point. All right, guys, just one word from our sponsor, and we'll get right back to it. Hey, guys, just a word from our sponsors, Podcorn. Podcorn sponsoring this episode, and they've sponsored a few others. And I've been using them personally for quite some time. And let me tell you, the ease of use of this platform is amazing. But first, what it is actually is a marketplace for podcasters and advertisers and provides a platform to do just that. And all you really have to do as a podcaster is follow the prompts on their website. And what you do is you put out bids, basically. You set your own rates. And when somebody's interested, they'll get back with you and they'll tell you exactly what they want. You'll record the ad. They approve it. And when your podcast posts, you get paid. It's that simple. Ease of use is baked into the cake of this platform. And if I can do it, Believe me, you can do it. You just follow the prompts. It's that simple. Stop chasing advertisers. Get on Podcorn and let them chase you for a change. You set your own rates and you never lose any proprietary rights to your podcast. It's pretty simple, guys. Podcorn, get on it. All right, guys. So now it's July 1998 and Samson is in an absolute spiral. After talking about doing these bank jobs in North Carolina, I think he was living in South Carolina, but he ended up robbing five banks in less than three months in North Carolina. He got a total of about $60,000, $65,000. And these were your typical stick-up type robberies. He's in and out, and that's kind of a lot of money for stick-ups, but those are all federal felonies. He's got to know the cops are going to be on his heels. And there was something else happening with Gary Lee Sampson at a certain point, he developed this kind of effort attitude. And people say he talked about had contracting AIDS. He believed he had tested positive for AIDS. That's never been ascertained if he's been right. And I don't think he's getting AIDS treatment today. So I think he was wrong. He had told people alternately that he had cancer and that he had AIDS. And he did have a kind of a crazy 
personal life, you know, it's said that he was very promiscuous. And so people thought that may have been the case. But he developed a little psychosis over this, like he was dying. So he was going to do these big things, the bank jobs and all this other stuff. So, okay, it's July 20th, 1998, and the police raided the home of Gary Lee Sampson and Karen Anderson, who was living with them. And there was another accomplice there as well. Sampson actually got away. He wasn't present when the cops came and he took off. They missed him by a few hours, the police say. Just a few hours would have saved all of this. So by the next day, Gary Lee Sampson is back in Massachusetts, lucky us. And he pitched a tent behind a bar in Abington, Massachusetts. And that's where he spent the night, allegedly. And so it's at this time where Gary Lee Sampson's on the run for all these federal felonies, all these bank robberies. He wants to turn himself in. And he had stayed overnight in the tent in Abington, and he walked to a nearby payphone. He used the payphone to call the FBI number in Boston. And guess what, guys? If you know the history of the FBI in Boston from the Whitey Bulger investigations and everything that went with it, the massive amount of corruption that went into and out of the Boston office of the FBI, you just have to shake your head. Somehow, an FBI operator hung up on him. And it would come out later that the FBI tried to cover this up and all this, but the Justice Department ended up subpoenaing the records from that payphone, proving that whomever answers the phone, a dispatcher, or whomever it was, was lying. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go. But that was at the point this all could have ended, right? Nobody had been physically hurt at this point. I think he had slapped Karen around a little bit. But nobody was dead yet, but that was about to change. So on a beautiful July day, July 24th, 1998, Philip McCloskey was recovering from quintuple bypass surgery. And he was driving in Marshfield, Massachusetts, and he stopped to offer what appeared to be a well-built guy, decent-looking guy who was hitchhiking on the side of a road, thought he'd do the guy a solid, let him in his car, and was going to give him a ride. It was a fatal mistake. So Samson is believed to get into McCloskey's car and he pulls a knife there and he has McCloskey drive to a nearby woods. At a certain point, he takes all the belongings from 69-year-old Philip McCloskey, who was a native of Taunton, Massachusetts. And I think he started to resist because at a certain point, Samson wanted to tie McCloskey to a tree and I think McCloskey knew what was coming and he tried to resist and he tried to get away and Samson stabbed him about 12 or 13 times in the back. A 69-year-old man who stopped to help you. That's what Gary Lee Samson did. And these facts are not contested. He later admitted to all of it and it's just a goddamn mess. So Gary steals an unknown amount of small items from McCloskey's cell phone, all this other nonsense. You know, this guy was just driving around, recovering from heart surgery, and he tries to do a fellow human being a solid, and he paid for it with his life, and he gets robbed of whatever trinkets that are in his pocket. So that must hold Gary Lee Sampson over for a couple days. But on July 27th in Plymouth, Massachusetts, Sampson ran into Jonathan Rizzo, who was 19 and a college student in the area. By all accounts, a great kid. 
at some point, Samson picks out Rizzo. And I think Rizzo was a waiter at a local restaurant. And at a certain point, Samson asked him for a ride. And some witnesses would later say that they saw the two fighting in the parking area. What police believe happened is that Samson pulls a knife at that point and the resistance stops. Jonathan Rizzo knows at a minimum he's going to get stabbed, so he tries to ride it out, and it's just not going to go well. So Samson forces Rizzo into his own car and drives back to Abington, Massachusetts. So the next day, Rizzo is reported missing, and the hunt starts for him. But three days later, on July 30th, I think is what it was, Jonathan Rizzo's body was found. The kid's throat was slashed. And he was tied to a tree, just like McCloskey. But this time it was at Samson's campsite where he had pitched a tent the night before he called the FBI. So that's where Jonathan Rizzo was found. Stabbed multiple times, robbed. All for just these small amount of money. Could have just robbed him, went on your way. Crazy. And to think this guy called the FBI to turn himself in. I mean, why didn't he think to just call the Abington police and say, come get me. They certainly would have had a cell farm. But you can't put normal thinking on crazy people, sorry to say. So when they find Jonathan Rizzo's body, his car's still missing. And that's because Samson had driven Rizzo's car up to the lakes region of New Hampshire. During this time frame, Samson drives to Madison, New Hampshire, which is in that lakes region, but he visits his ex-father-in-law of his wife, Karen, and Samson had some cash, I think, from robbing those two people that he murdered and offered to give the car to the father-in-law and give him all this cash. Well, the father-in-law or ex-father-in-law is somewhat of a normal guy and can see he's batshit crazy. Samson's just crazy. He turns him away, doesn't accept anything from him. So I don't think... Samson's father-in-law or ex-father-in-law knew how lucky he was to escape with his life because just after leaving the father-in-law's house in Meredith, he goes to another home and commits another brutal homicide. This time he goes to the home of Robert Whitney. Mr. Whitney had worked as a city councilor in Concord, New Hampshire for many years, and he was 58 years old. Mr. Whitney had a property in Meredith right on the lake, Lake Winnipesaukee, and Mr. Sampson went in there, tried to rob him, and ended up strangling him. And the police later found Rizzo's car in Mr. Whitney's driveway. So at this point, the police are putting all of this together, and Sampson's coming up. But they know this is a serial case, and people are being killed every other day or so. It's just insane. So later during his confession, Samson states that he'd also been picked up by other people and let them live for varying reasons. One guy was let live because he offered to come back and pick up Samson at some point and drive him later. So I think Samson had some use for him. And like these small kindnesses, Samson was like playing God almost. And if you didn't offer him something or treat him exactly right, you were murdered. So it was just an insane crime spree. But at least a part of Gary Lee Sampson wanted to continue this crime spree. And his last assault and battery, attempted murder, whatever you want to call it, was against Adam Gregory. 
He was a 39-year-old father of two from Clarendon, Vermont, and he gave Samson his final ride. And soon after jumping into the car, Samson pulls a knife on him and tells him to drive to the woods. But this guy just wasn't going for it. He pulled over into a rest stop area. He slowed the car down and jumped out. And I think he was assaulted. He may have even been stabbed by Samson. But he rolls out of the way and, and runs away. And Samson only gets the car. This guy does survive, thank God. But Samson's now on the road and he's got a brand new car. So in another shocking twist in this story, Samson drives about 90 minutes and... I don't know what happens to the guy. He stops in Plymouth, New Hampshire at an unoccupied house, breaks in, picks up the phone in the house and dials 911, offers to turn himself in. And while he's waiting for the police, he pops a can of beer, and sat there drinking beer, waiting for the police. The guy's just gone. This guy is just a total loon. But that's how he was ultimately caught. There was no big SWAT team. There was no big police investigation. For the second time, he turned himself in, but this time he called the local police who came right out. I just can't believe what happened with the FBI in this case. So in the only good thing that this guy, Samson, has ever done, he pled guilty to these charges, these three homicides, saving the families a trial and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the state of New Hampshire, the expense of finding him guilty. So in this case, Samson was tried federally, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to work out why it was federally. Did the FBI come in and say it had something to do with those bank robberies, because bank robbery is a federal crime as well as a state crime, or it may have been the interstate activity, the murders happening and the crimes happening interstate. That also prompts FBI involvement and federal involvement. So that may be it. But he pled guilty. And there's a lot of video on the internet, on YouTube about this case. If you have a look at him, he's stacked. He's just one of those people that seems to be naturally built. I know this goofball is not going to the gym every day, but he may have been into calisthenics or something like that because he seemed kind of jacked. Pretty powerful looking guy. I don't know how he's doing now. So Gary Lee Sampson was naturally found guilty. He pled guilty. The only good thing he's ever done in his life. And he was sentenced to death for these murders federally. In Massachusetts, we don't have the death penalty on the state level, but the federal government does, and, you know, of course, all 50 states. In the ensuing years, there's been some more litigation, mostly surrounding Gary Lee Sampson's sentence. I believe they had appealed on some level that there was a juror misconduct situation during the trial, and he did end up getting a new sentencing phase of his federal criminal trial. And again, he was convicted pretty quickly after that. And he is back on federal death row, I believe, at Terry Hot, Indiana. He has not been executed yet, but he is on federal death row. And I have to tell you guys, he's right where he belongs. Actually, he's still above ground, so he's not right where he belongs, but don't feel any sympathy for this guy. He felt no sympathy when he plunged his knife and strangled these people. It's horrible what he did to Mr. Rizzo at age 19. He'd given you what you wanted. Let the kid go. Let them all go. Why do you have to do that? It's just insane, and it's a waste. He tried to turn himself into the FBI. That's something I just can't get over in this case. 
and an investigation was conducted. Originally, the FBI tried to cover this up, as they do in most things in Boston and probably nationwide. They said he never called that Gary Lee Sampson was not only a murderer, but a liar. But the Department of Justice eventually subpoenaed the phone records for this payphone outside, I believe it was the Ashland Ale House, where Sampson had pitched his tent. It was right in that area where he'd used the phone, the payphone, and the records came back that Gary Lee Sampson was in fact telling the truth. And now the FBI had major egg on their face and they have to interview and investigate their own dispatchers or whomever handles the incoming calls. One person ended up lying during this investigation to the federal investigators and later confessed. He was eventually fired from the FBI and sentenced to six months in prison for lying about this. All they had to do was try to find out where that call had come from, right? Somehow, some way, three lives would have been saved and all those lives attached to him had just been changed and blown up forever because of this stupid phone call with the FBI who they'd never really fully explained what happened. They said it was an inadvertent hang-up. What I think happened was this guy was covering a lunch break for somebody else and this was going to start a whole new chain of work for this person and they hung up on Gary Lee Sampson because they didn't believe him. They didn't believe that a multiple bank robber would be turning himself in on the phone and they hung up on him and they went on about their business and in the interim Samson killed all those people. It was totally unnecessary. All right, guys, that's the story of Gary Lee Sampson. Totally unnecessary, but typically Massachusetts. I'm going to leave you there, and I'm going to be on to the next one. Take care.